Hey everyone, welcome back to Latter Day Takes. I hope you all had as good of a weekend as I did. I definitely had a great weekend, and there were a couple reasons why. And obviously, the one that everybody knows is having to deal with the BYU-Utah game and the outcome, the unforeseen outcome uh, from the majority of us. And obviously, I'm no exception to that. It was very well documented on the exact podcast. And on this exact podcast, sorry, a week ago. And it was a very pleasant surprise. And I loved it. And I had a blast watching it. I was up with some friends in Island Park, Idaho, um, on a little getaway weekend trip. We just had a great weekend overall. We uh, hung out, um, made some new friends, and had a nice time at the river, doing some fishing, hanging out, reading, just having some quiet time, and playing a pickleball tournament that went about three hours, which probably lasted a little bit longer than it needed to, but just beautiful weather, beautiful scenery, good people, good vibes, and then BYU comes out with a victory that seemingly kind of changed the dynamic once again of the rivalry which was fun and a lot of utah fans had acknowledged that actually it was very gracious they were very nice the ones that i had interacted with casey included who came on the podcast last week he did say he's like that's the last time i'll come on your podcast (laughs) which i don't know if that's actually true but um i don't blame him for saying that either but very gracious and kind words were said from a lot of my former utah or sorry not former (laughs) A lot of my Utah fan friends, a lot of older Utah fan friends that um, I've been friends with for a long time that I hadn't heard from reached out, and it was really nice to see that. You know, it's kind of things that transcends the rivalry and makes you realize why you even like sports in the first place, which quite frankly is camaraderie between two groups within your own group and then obviously outside of any other group, and that's why sports are great in a lot of ways. Anyway, before we get into the meat of the podcast, um, which... Chase comes back on because I had to have him on to kind of rehash and recap some of the rivalry. That'll take place near the end. But I want to say the first 15, 20 minutes of the podcast are of us talking about other topics that are somewhat relevant and new. And one thing that stood out to me specifically recently in the scriptures that I want to touch on here in a second on my own, and then I actually bring it up with Chase um, later in the podcast. But I... I had a thought that I wanted to share quickly. I was in church in Island Park on Sunday morning, and I don't often t- uh, pack clothes, uh, like Sunday clothes specifically, for especially like short weekend trips. Um, I And that doesn't mean I don't plan on going to church. I actually usually go to church more often than not when I'm on vacation. Not all the time, but I'd like to if, when I can. And... I just generally show up in the clothes that I'm wearing. Like if I have pants, I'll throw on some pants. If I have a nicer shirt, I'll use that shirt or something. I don't think that's bad. I don't know. I think the important thing is showing up and, you know, trying to catch a sacrament meeting and things like that. But maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know. Regardless, I do it. And so I showed up in church just kind of wearing these dark joggers and tennis shoes and a nicer T-shirt. And... We showed up a little late, pretty packed house, so that was cool to see. I didn't realize there'd be that many members on a random Sunday in Island Park, but um, as we walked in, I had noticed there was this older couple sitting 
adjacent to the foyer, so they were in the actual sacrament meeting room, but as close as you could get to the foyer, the doors open. So right when we walk in, we basically see these people. And as we walk by them, I notice the older woman looks at me and she gives a smile. It was very pleasant. And it occurred to me that a lot of people take note of not feeling welcome in scenarios like these because they may get a look or two that isn't quite as friendly, right? It's not a smile. It may look like a look of judgment per se or kind of the sizing them up and down and being like, why'd you come here if you were dressed like that, you know? And people may have done that to me. I didn't really look around a whole lot, but I definitely noticed this woman. And the thought did occur to me that I think it's very likely that for as many experiences that anybody has had in a situation like that in church where they didn't feel welcome, there were a lot more people that would have smiled at them if they wanted to notice that and wanted to make eye contact or whatever. And maybe it was too late at that time and they already felt like, oh gosh, I don't even want to be here anymore. So they're just looking down more often than looking up. I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of different variables that go into play there and little dynamics that take place. But I will say, I would venture to guess that it's more likely there are more welcoming people in those situations than not. Now, does that mean unwelcoming people don't exist? Of course they do. They're everywhere. But I do think the majority of this church has more welcoming people. That's my own thought. That occurred to me. I thought there's maybe that needs to be expressed a little bit more. Because I thought there may have been people that looked at me and were like, this guy's definitely not dressed for church. Why is he here? I don't know. I didn't notice them. But I noticed that woman smiling at me and I immediately was like, what a nice disarming woman here to make me feel more comfortable. Not that I was looking to feel uncomfortable. I really didn't care. I've been to church before on vacation wearing uh, clothes that were certainly not up to Sunday dress standards, but that didn't stop me. And I know who I am in the church, in the context of the church. I know how active I am and I know how much I love the gospel and the church itself. So I wasn't really going to let anybody dictate how I felt, but I did notice that immediately that woman seemed just so welcoming and I really appreciated that. And I would wish more people would look to the scenarios like that. Not that they're easy necessarily to notice, especially when your first interaction might be a negative one, but they're out there. I promise if you get a, give it a little bit more of a chance, somebody will find you and they may not even have to go out of their way in order for you to feel maybe just a little bit more welcome in those scenarios. Anyway, that was one thought that occurred to me. Other thought, another scripture that I came across just uh, recently on Sunday as I was reading some Korahor, right? Something that I've been studying a little bit more and sharing on this podcast recently, which is, honestly, if Korahor had a Twitter, this is exactly what it would look like. This verse, it's amazing. I'm going to read it. I'm sorry for reading this twice in the podcast because Chase was unfamiliar with it, so I had to throw it his way as well. It's in Alma 30, verse 23. If you're unfamiliar with Alma 30, that is the Korahor chapter. That's the only chapter Korahor appears in, and it goes through that whole thing. It's a very long chapter, actually, but... It goes through kind of his whole process and the, the, the impact that he had on the Nephites. Anyway, it says this is an interaction he has with Alma and the high priest, and it mentions that the high priest specifically is, is, is who's Korahor speaking to right here. And the high priest's name is Gidona, and Korahor said unto him, Because I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers, and because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under the foolish ordinances and performances which are laid down by ancient prophets to usurp power and authority over them, to keep them in ignorance, that they may not lift up their heads, but be brought down according 
to thy words. That's a tweet. That is a tweet I see almost every day on Twitter from, honestly, members of the church. Members of the church that are sure they know better than the outdated and antiquated laws, norms, rules, regulations, commandments of our gospel today in the church. It's fascinating. That's literally the same blueprint I see all the time from very progressive members of the church and very recently as well with Elder Holland's talk to bring that up again. I know maybe that's beating a dead horse, but it's so relevant because there was how many people did you see out there that were saying, oh gosh, I cannot defend these bigoted remarks from Elder Holland. And you're talking about this like what? Like this, are you, are, so you're saying essentially Elder Holland, an apostle of the Lord, is he's just out of touch? Is that the accusation here? Korhor literally uses the word ignorance. Korhor literally says, foolish ordinances and performances which are laid down by ancient priests to usurp power. Their only goal is to get power over you and authority over you, them, he says, but of the people to keep them in ignorance that they may not lift up their heads but be brought down according to thy words. It's fascinating. I mean, you sit here and think like, no joke, this, like this is... It's not, this doesn't even have to be prophesied, but this is just evident that the devil works in the same exact way he's always been working, is that he tries to convince people, you know what, you actually know more than these people. You actually are very much more charitable, in touch, service-oriented, and loving than the very people that tell you to do that, because they're outdated. They don't get it. They're out, they're, they're out of touch. They don't know really what it's like to love. They don't understand it. I just can't believe how obviously connected those two things are and that these people on Twitter, these very progressive members of the church, are letting this play out. It's like they're they're just letting the same blueprint that Satan has used on all of his people that he's had influence over on them. And honestly, this isn't me trying to be like, well, these people can go now kick rocks and leave the church and whatever. It's sad. That's that's the point I'm making. It's sad how much of an influence Satan has on members of the church. And I wish it wasn't the case because I really just wish these people would have a little bit more faith that these prophets, these these apostles, know what they're doing and know what they're saying. And just because it may not seem easy to follow doesn't mean it's not right. Just because it doesn't seem like it's worthy of the world's standards doesn't make it not right. Anyway, I feel like I'm starting to pontificate a little bit more than I have been previously in this episode. So I'm going to kind of close it out here. But suffice it to say, I think it's important to keep standing up for our beliefs. I see this all the time play out that these antichrists essentially are all over twitter and they're trying to make the case that they have a better feel for the standards and the gospel than our actual leaders of the church and i promise you that's not the case i have no doubt in my mind anyway let me wrap it up here hope you all had a great weekend even you Ute fans out there you know i love you deep down i don't all think you're jerks I just think some of you are jerks. I think some BYU fans are jerks too. It's just how it is. Hope you're all are gearing up for a great week. Later in the week, we're going to have a little bit of a uh, 
I'm going to bring my mom on actually, and we're going to talk of a concept that she thought of, a theory, if you will. It's not technically a theory, but this idea of harness testosterone and how important it is that we have men involved in some of the functions of the church and a lot of the functions of the church and you know some of the feminists out there may be laughing that I say some of them and they may mean that I mean all of them but just basically the pivotal role that testosterone and men specifically play in the church and the idea of harness testosterone and how much of a power it can really be for the church so anyway that'll be coming later this week that'll be probably dropping on either Thursday or Friday I'm actually going to be out of town for a little bit hiking Half Dome with my brothers out in Yosemite. I'm really excited for that hike. It should be a fun time. Um, And then I think I'll put a little bit of a preview on that with a friend of mine who's an Arizona State fan. He knows a lot about that team for anybody that's wanting to get a perspective of an Arizona State fan. Anyway, y'all have a good one. Love you all. And I will be back later this week. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the yes. best cult. Have you ever, under the influence of alcohol, questioned the teachings of the Mormon church? Well, these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. <laughs> Everybody's so nice in Utah. They're all Mormon, right? Yeah. So they're not most drinking. It, and they're like not cussing. They're like, Slovis, you stink. <laughs> I'm afraid it was the Mormons. Yes, the Mormons were the crack dancers. Because God loves Mormons and he wants some more. Shout out to the Latter-day Saints. You gonna sing along, Chase? I don't. Even, I don't think I know the words anymore, man. At all? I might not. You know the rah 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 part, the the absolute yeah. best part because it's not like, you know, it's very manly. <laughs> it's it's not from 1942 or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. um, hip hip hooray! <laughs> it is a great day to be a cougar. This might be the best day to be a cougar ever. Maybe, maybe ever. Honestly, it's always kind of a good day to be a cougar because we're we know we're got a one way ticket to heaven. So it's not really like you know, there's no real day that's better than the other. But this one's just a little bit better because we uh, finally seem to be on an upward trajectory. Well, let, let's just dissect this for a second because, really, I mean, the two biggest frustrations. In, in my in my lifetime of being a BYU fan are A, not having a seat at the big boys table and B, watching this ridiculous streak of losing to Utah year after year. And to have both of those two things come to an end on the same weekend is just unfathomable. Yeah. It's insane. I mean, I, can, I cannot, I, I don't even know how that happened. It, it blows my mind. Even as someone as delusional as yourself that predicted like Samson Nakua winning the game on a last second play on this podcast a week ago would never have predicted that in the same weekend we would have gotten accepted into the Big 12 and beat the University of Utah, breaking a 12-year-long streak and 
nine game streak ending. So it wouldn't be 10, which was amazing. Um, before we really dive into this, though, I actually want to throw something your way that I talked about in the intro. You ready for this? This is a super random, but I do want to cover it first because uh, most of my listeners, I would say, don't even really care about BYU sports. So I want to kind of make sure I talk about other things regularly, if that makes sense. But this stood out to me. I read this the other day in the Book of Mormon, and so I want to read it to you. And I'm going to ask you what it sounds like to you. It's out of Alma. It's ch- chapter 30, verse 23. If you're familiar at all with Alma 30, which I know you aren't at all. Um, <laughs> uh, it's Korahor. It's the Korahor chapter when he comes into play with Alma the Younger. And oh, everything. You, you, mean, you mean the Calvin chapter, right? The Calvin. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Korahor. Bingo. The Calvin chapter, which honestly, it's so relevant what I'm about to talk about. He says, uh, Korahor said unto him, he's talking to the high priest, Gedona, because it was the high priest and Alma that were actually kind of interrogating him through all this. Because I do not teach the foolish tradition of your fathers. This is Korahor talking. Because I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers, and because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under the foolish ordinances and performances which are laid down by ancient priests to usurp power and authority over them, to keep them in ignorance that they may not lift up their heads but be brought down according to thy words. What does that sound like to you? Sounds a lot like woke Twitter. Bingo, dude. I freaking knew I could count on you, man. (laughs) I honestly see this on Twitter every freaking day, it seems like. All these progressive members of the church that are like, oh my gosh, these are such antiquated rules and laws that we have to deal with. Like, honestly, it's just the patriarchy that's trying to control you and make you live your life in a certain way, but don't do it. It's like unbelievable like you could not have scripted this any better that these people are literally acting the same way Korahor acted it's it's yeah. it's crazy and that's why i was saying a couple months ago maybe i think even less than a couple months ago these people are antichrists if Korahor is an antichrist tons of members of the church that view themselves as progressive members of the church are antichrists maybe not all of them but a lot of them are and i think there's a fine line there sometimes well, we should thank them, really, for giving us a stronger testimony of the Book of Mormon by examples like this. That's exactly right. Like, even if Joseph Smith just wrote the Book of Mormon at this point, it's like, whatever. <laughs> I'll believe anything that guy started than if he wrote it. But he claims he didn't write it, so then I'm going to claim what he says it is, which, honestly, I've gained my own testimony at this point, so it's not even about that. But it's just funny to think about it even in those terms, where it's like, if he did write this, then he was he was honestly just... He at least was able to, he was at least a palm reader at the very least, a legit one, one that I would pay $20 to read my future. I don't know about you. Well, I've always kind of, I remember being a kid and hearing that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon when he was like 23 years old. And when I was a kid, that seemed old to me. But now looking back at 23 year old me, I was a dumbass. And so... (laughs) To, to think a 23-year-old could have put this all together, even with the worst of intentions or all the help in the world, it just doesn't even seem remotely plausible. So, I mean, even 33-year-old me would not be nearly capable of doing that, and I'm an educated person. So good old Joseph Smith, farm boy, it's just not even remotely reasonable to think he could have done that. 
Well, even though I actually don't love that comparison, I'll be honest, because I people make that and they're like, well, like Joe Rogan always says, he's like, I mean, the kid was 14. Clearly he was a liar. And it's like, well, 14 back then was honestly like 20 now, roughly. I believe, I don't know the actual equivalent, but clearly 14 year olds then are not the same as 14 year olds now, just like 23 year olds then are not like 23 year olds now. That's to give you, believe it or not, I'm giving you just a little bit more credit here. So just keep that in mind. But Yeah, fair enough. No, I mean, point being uh, with Joseph Smith, in the narrative that Joseph Smith made it all up, you're giving Joseph Smith a heck of a lot of credit. That's, yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the overall point, as you said. Um, other thing that we wanted to talk about here really quickly, though, was I saw I saw a uh, AOC's own tweet that actually said that it, it was of her in probably at least a five thousand dollar dress that had the writing "Tax the Rich" on the back at the Met Gala of all things. Yeah, I mean, this is basically this is basically the the biggest representation of rich snobby people that you can possibly come up with. I mean, I I don't think you could come up with a gathering of people or a, a purpose of a gathering that I that just uh, embodies everything I can't stand about modern culture more than Met Gala, and so to have AOC be there in the midst of that and uh, kind of self owning without even recognizing it is is pretty true to form. No, it is amazing that like. it's stranger than fiction in a sense where it's like if honestly if a screenwriter tried to throw that in there they'd be like oh that's just that's just too obvious like that's that's come on like that that's not gonna happen you know like that's just like that doesn't make sense if you were to put that out there in some sort of storyline format like oh of course the politician that pretends to care about the poor shows up at one of the most elite parties you can possibly show up to in the country wearing a very expensive dress talking about how the rich are terrible and need their money taken so that they can give to the poor. Like, that's too ironic even to put on a screen. And here we are seeing it honestly played out. It could easily have been a headlight from The Onion, just as easily. Well, all of these jackasses are the same. I mean, doesn't Bernie Sanders have like two or three houses? I, I can't remember three. how many it is. Yep. It's, it's more houses, houses than I have, that's for sure. <laughs> well, you just got a house, actually. I have, I have a house, yeah. A house. Well, I don't have it. I'll, I'll close on Wednesday, so I don't have it yet. But yeah, I'm I'm one third of the way to being Bernie Sanders in terms of uh, my elite status. So. boy, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Jackass. <laughs> Anything else you want to cover, man? I mean, we got we got the the, the world is your oyster. I mean, you, I as far as I mean, I know we covered the game, but I, I'm still. I mean, are you still basking in the glory of that? Oh, game we haven't covered the game quite yet. We're still going to get into that, and so yeah, I do okay. obviously want to talk more about that. But you did, in fact, along those lines, you actually were in a lot of strange company during this game. We watched it up in Idaho in a little getaway place in a cabin in Island Park. And um, you didn't know easily half the people there before that trip. Or at least maybe you had been acquaintances with most of yeah, them, but you I, didn't really I, know. I had met, yeah, I had met most of them at some point, but I, I, I didn't you know, really know the crowd that well. But when it came to game time, 
I was going to be my true psycho self during the game. It didn't matter who was watching, who was judging. I, you know, that's just in the BYU Utah game and those kind of stakes and and the way that game was going, I wasn't going to hold back. That's for sure. No, and you sure didn't. In fact, um, I'm not sure you made friends because they may not have been your. It's not that you lost friends. I mean, because they were never your friends in the first place. But you definitely didn't make any friends. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, just I, I wouldn't even be offended. I would love to to be a fly on the wall um, after I left the room to see to see what kind of things were said, um, if oh, any. Absolutely, were. absolutely. No. Um, so I guess we can get into it, but it's funny because we we did take note that you and I had uh, experienced a lot of big BYU games together. Um, we saw, we had noted last in last week's pod, we saw, we watched the 2009 BYU-Oklahoma game together when we beat number three Oklahoma in the nation as a number 20, ranked number 20 BYU team. And we also were at the BYU-Texas game in Provo the first time we played Texas when we just completely trounced them, came out of nowhere. Honestly, which was made more of an impact on us as fans than the second time we played Texas because um, there was already a precedent set that Taysom might just destroy this Texas team, I guess, again, which he did. It was weird, but it still happened. So it wasn't it wasn't like as crazy when it did happen that second time. So the first time was like quite the experience for us witnessing that firsthand. Well, that came out of thin air as well because the previous week we had, I think we had lost like 13 to six against a crappy Virginia team. And we, it looked like we were really going to suck. And then we came out of nowhere and had one of the most impressive offensive games in BYU history, really. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And I remember like it got it got delayed by rain for an hour or two and there were concerns about the field and everything. And it was just like, we're not going to win this game. Texas is way better than we are. And we just came out and blew them away. But my point being, you and I have really when we've been together watching games, magic really has happened. We must be living right. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Austin Colley thought it was himself living right all along, but it was actually us. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. I I said I said a Jarrett, a Hall was going to break the curse of Hall, and it happened. Here we are. Well, and I think I remember joking. Um, I can't remember if it was on the podcast or not. It might have been afterwards, but I joked that not only are we going to win that game, but we're going to kill him. Now I don't know if we killed him, but we, we didn't kill him. But we were pretty close. I mean, if Jaron Hall doesn't step out of bounds, apparently I, I didn't actually see the, a good replay of that. But no, if that, he doesn't. ESPN a, camera crew was garbage that night. Yeah. But, I mean, that's a two-touchdown game, and considering, relatively speaking, to how we've played them in the past, I would almost consider that killing them, but whatever, uh, I'll take the win. I don't want to go take- there because that conveys how it's been more pathetic than anything the last few years. In fact, the last while because we haven't beaten them more, more by more than one possession since 1996, as I had noted many times before, and that just shows that like if this is killing them, then that just really is more of a sad commentary on our history of when we've won games. So one thing I will concede to you though, is that we, even though we didn't kill them, we did seem like we were in control. We never, we never trailed them. And so it may have seemed like we did. We, I mean, maybe it didn't, I don't think it ever seemed like we killed them, but it definitely being in control as much as we were that entire game does convey this whole idea that like, Oh yeah, like that was our game to lose. And I think, looking at it after the fact. Yeah. But here's, here's another problem that I have along those lines, not problem, I guess, 
but here's a thought. I am starting to get some news from friends that like, honestly, Utah's offensive and defensive line might not be as good as they had all thought. And these are like, these guys are being truthful. They really feel this way. I don't think they're just trying to undermine BYU's win. I don't know if it's true yet still, but it's going to be interesting moving forward. So I don't know. I, it, Utah might not be that good. There is a scenario there because here's the thing. Charlie Brewer didn't look great. The last pass of the game that ended the game was one of the worst throws I've ever seen from a quarterback in a situation like that. He wasn't even close to Britton Covey. That thing sailed like 10 feet over his head. And it was a, it was just a, it was right there. Like it was a pass an eighth grader could make. And Charlie Brewer just, it was clearly that he cracked under pressure um, and you saw that before, like the interception he threw was also a bad pass because our line was right there ready to get him. And he just, boom, felt the pressure and just like, let it slip out of his hands. And it went way over his receiver's head, right into our linebacker's arms. So I just, or maybe our DBs, sorry. I think a DB got the interception, but anyway, what I'm saying is, well, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out for Utah. Cause I'm not sure just how good they are. Yeah. It could be that they're not as good as anticipated, but uh, we're, we're, you know, I, I don't think we should jump to conclusions too much one way or another until two or three more weeks have played out. Um, what, what I am curious about is, uh, what was the most encouraging aspect of the game that you saw? Like what position group or what players stood out or what was that? What was it that gave you hope that BYU could be legit? Um, I have to think about that for a second. I, there's a couple things. I'm impressed with our DBs. That's a that's a big aspect of of that game. I feel like because from what I understand, I'm not positive here. I need this fact check. Maybe our buddy Austin Story, who seems to be pretty in the know with all these things, and he's always quick to tell me when I'm wrong. <laughs> and I'm glad, actually, because I'm wrong plenty. Which no, I'm just joking. He really doesn't reach out to tell me I'm wrong, but he has corrected me before, and I've appreciated it. But. Um, it seems like we don't really have any returning starters on the DB side. Certainly not the corner side. We may have had a safety that's been that's a returning starter, but it's a pretty awesome commentary that they were able to hold down like a pretty good Utah receiving crew and specifically a one of the best passers Utah's had in the last decade, which also isn't saying a ton. But um I think overall I'd say it'd have to be the most promising demonstration was Jaron Hall. And our receivers, I thought like we, he just had options and he was making plays and it was supposed to be against a really good Utah defense. And we were able to pick him apart from time to time. So if we had see any weaker defenses down the stretch, which some people speculate might be the case, then we could really have a pretty powerful offense as we move forward. And as we get better and more in the groove of things. Well, I do love the energy that the Nakua brothers brought, and I absolutely thought that penalty was worth it, watching them celebrate. That was amazing. The end zone. I loved that. And, oh, yeah. No, that, that kind of stuff is worth it. Like, that, that, the amount of energy that brings to the game is worth more than one point that you lost on the extra point, which Old Droid, after his re- ridiculous celebration, um, then goes on to miss the extra point. So I, I blame Old Droid more for that than, than the Nakua brothers. But, I was thinking about but, this, by the way. Side note. Oldroid has to have terrible friends. I'm convinced that all his friends just like constantly talk about how cool he is and he just <laughs> eats it up because who else? 
after making a field goal that didn't really look like a tough field goal to make, certainly something he's not done before. It's the first three points of the game is walking off with his arms hanging out. Like he's like, no joke. Like he's the second coming of, of Jesus Christ. Like, I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Well, he, lo- he looked like Mel Gibson on the part on Braveheart where he was giving himself up. or like nick young when he shot a three turns around assuming it's going in and does and puts his arms out and then it misses it bricks out and you're just like and then he misses the 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 following extra point granted it wasn't longer extra point but that extra point was less yards than his field goal so old droid bothers me actually i just personality wise he's a fantastic kicker but i think the problem is, is that he knows it and that's why I don't like him because I think his friends are just a bunch of yes men are like, yeah, man, you're the man. And he's like, yeah, you know what? I think I am the man. Anyway, sorry. That was my tangent. Yeah. Well, so hot take here. And I think you and I have discussed this to some extent outside of this, but um, so Jaron Hall, when I watched Jaron Hall in 2021, I, I think I see a better, I'm not saying a better pro prospect, but I see a better college quarterback than I saw in Zach Wilson in 2019. That is a hot take. Um, I think they're still so different that it's really hard to make that comparison. I, What I will tell you is that Jaron Hall is he's less of a head case than Zach Wilson was his sophomore year. Now, I don't mean that in the sense where like Zach Wilson is like, like really emotionally volatile, volatile on the field, not emotionally, but he was kind of volatile with the way he played. Like he made some bad decisions. He tried to do too much. And I think he would maybe get rattled a little too easily as a sophomore. Whereas I think Jaron Hall is way more cool, calm, and collected. I think he's a lot more mature looking out there. I think he plays within his boundaries a lot better, doesn't try to do too much, and he understands kind of his limitations. And that's a stark difference I see between those two as sophomores. But one of the major differences is just age. I mean, Jaron Hall's got to be 22 at this point. Yeah, he did a mission, right? Yeah. And and so he's. I think he has a kid now, doesn't he? Yeah, he's married. He's got a kid. So, yeah. So he's, he's probably at least 22. And so I think that's the biggest difference between those two. So I don't even knack, knock Zach Wilson for that. Because um, performance-wise, that's a lot harder to compare because they're such different talent types, if you ask me. Yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, I think you kind of hit it already. But Zach Wilson, it kind of felt like he was trying to – his his sophomore year, He fe- it felt like he was trying to build a highlight reel of himself more than win games. Um, and that, that was his biggest downfall. Sometimes it paid off, but a lot of times it lost games. I mean, the Toledo game comes to mind. Um, I mean, there, there were, there were multiples. I mean, that he would, he played pretty crappy coming off of the injury, which maybe you can blame the injury for that. But yeah, Jaron, Jaron also, if I'm a player on BYU's football team, I absolutely would have more respect for Jaron as a leader than Zach. I'm sorry, but like Zach, Zach was a fantastic talent. I wish him nothing but the best in the NFL. He might end up being the greatest that's ever come through our program as a pro prospect. But if if I was on a BYU football team, I would want Jaron as my leader more than Zach, just personality-wise and stuff. Yeah, I actually agree with you there. I mean, we have talked about that before where it's like problem with problem with Zach is that he didn't seem like a natural leader, believe it or not, which I know is weird to say about almost any quarterback. But um, a lot of it kind of seemed forced maybe. And – it also 
his personality doesn't seem like a lot of people would gravitate to it naturally as being like, yeah, man, like I'd die for you on the battlefield. Whereas Jaron Hall, like seems like he truly has every one of his players backs. So all of those guys are going to be like, I got you, man. Like I will do everything in my power to make sure you succeed. We succeed as a team. Cause I think Jaron Hall has a lot more passion in that regard. I think you don't see a lot of passion from from Zach Wilson in his career at BYU. Um, but he was, obviously phenomenal that third year and really cared about the game and really cared about his own performance and really did want to win. So I don't want to take any of that away from him, but there are differences in that regard where it's like Jaron Hall has a little bit more like the Brandon Doman feel where he's just like, I'm going to, I will literally die on this field for all of you right now. Whereas Zach Wilson will be like, I'll get injured, but that's about all I've got. I've got a pro career to think about. And Jaron Hall's like, this is everything to me right now. Yeah, well, Jaron is making me feel a little bit better because I, I was very strongly worded during the 2019 season that I felt that Jaron was the better option moving forward. Obviously, Zach made me look a little ridiculous. Now, granted, that was maybe unforeseeable. And that I was unpredictable. That, Anybody that yeah. thought they that Zach Wilson was going to have the season that he did is a liar. There's no question. There were people that were saying he was really a lot better than he had shown those first two years, and I'm willing to give him that credit. But anyone that thought he was going to be a first-round a draft pick after seeing what we saw is lying to themselves. I don't care who you are. Yeah. And, and they'll keep lying to themselves, but that's fine. They can, they can have that, but I am glad that Jaron has at least validated my position that he's a quality top notch starting quarterback in, in college football that probably if he sticks around for a couple more years, I don't know what his ambitions are, but if he sticks around as long as his eligibility allows him to, he could eventually be in that Heisman type of conversation, especially in the big 12, you know, who knows what he could do in two or three years of, of, at BYU. So, Gotcha. Yeah, it's a fair it's a fair point. It's going to be really fascinating to see what comes of him. It's going to be interesting to see what comes of Conover in the process. Um, Romney kind of seems like a placeholder, but it's exciting. We got ASU this week. I'm going to get my buddy on the pod who's a big a- Arizona State fan, and we're going to kind of hash some things out on that end, get his thoughts and everything. Well, so- and you're – some What's trivia that? for you, not to interrupt you, but some oh, trivia for you. Uh, when's the last time BYU has won back-to-back games against ranked opponents? Um, ooh, that's a really good question. I would say, since you're asking, I'm going to say it's been a while. And at this point, thing is, we don't play many ranked opponents like in a row any given year. But pretty uncommon. In the independence era, we had more chances of that, but the problem is we didn't really succeed in it either. So I would say probably 2009. Yep, you're actually right. I I looked this up today because I was curious. In 2009, we finished the season with the win against Utah, who was ranked, and then we went and beat Oregon State in the bowl game, who was like number 18. That's the only so, – I was able to put that together in my head as I was thinking about it because I, I was pretty sure Utah was ranked that year, and I knew Oregon State was actually supposed to be really good, and we killed them in the Vegas Bowl. There was the wind factor, I remember, at play that made things a little weird that we just seemed to be well more – like a lot more prepared for. But, yeah, I figured Utah probably was ranked that year, and so that would have been it. And I, and I also th- figured it's going to be the easiest to have a back-to-back um, – ranking if we if utah was ranked on any given year and um 
BYU or sorry, they're the, obviously if they if BYU was, they would have made a better bowl or a better bowl opponent, and that was the best case scenario there or most likely scenario. Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty exciting times. We got a chance to go back to back against ranked opponents. We almost did it in 2015 um, when we beat ranked Boise State on the Hail Mary play for Mangum, and then we almost went and beat UCLA but lost by one. That was mm-hmm. the other opportunity we had. That yeah, was we lost by one. Yeah. That's right. That was back when Tanner Mangum didn't suck for some reason. And then, yeah, weird times, man. I'm not sure what happened there. There was more to it than him just not being good. Like, there was something really, some external element there at play, it seemed like. But, um, as we wrap it up here, what what should I do for Casey's Instagram? We made a bet last week on the podcast that I could post anything for him on his Instagram if BYU beats Utah. I think you got to go the, I mean, it might be kind of cliche and it'll be pretty obvious that he's been hacked, but I think that's probably the only appropriate way to go about this is to yeah. do something that's pretty blatantly, you know, him being hacked, but whatever, probably something along the lines of just acknowledging, like, you know, all these years I've been lying to myself about, you know, Utah being the older brother. But unfortunately, you know, last night proved to me once and for all that we are, in fact, a little brother. Something, I mean, you can make it spice it up, make it better than that. But something I actually want to say, I just want to make the, the picture something, obviously, like a pro BYU. And then I want the caption to just say, this is not a hack. I actually love BYU. <laughs> <laughs> I think the picture is going to be the key. Get a nice little Photoshop of his head. Um, I was thinking Max Hall. Get Max Hall involved somehow. Yeah, him and Max Hall. Like, actually, there's a picture um, circulating around Twitter. Some guy was wearing a Max Hall hates me shirt, and uh, and then he's like a picture with Max Hall. He saw at the game. Yeah, he I don't want to. Put, yeah, that's not that good though. That doesn't really acknowledge Casey as a closet BYU fan, which is what I want to do. Yeah, it's only going to be up for four months. Got to make it good. Yeah, we'll work on this. All right, sounds good. You got anything else? Uh, I think that's about it for me. Obviously, you think we're going to beat Arizona State, but I just got to get your prediction. How much, what do you think? Like, do you think we'll kind of own them, kind of control the game like we did against Utah, or what? It's going to be a battle. I think it's, I actually think we're going to have to come from behind, and, and Jaron Hall is going to come up, have to come up with a, a last minute drive to win this one. That's my prediction. All right. So that means we'll I, probably I, win by two touchdowns, then. That's good to know. Yeah, well, there's there's inevitably, I mean, I, I like to think that the players are prepared for this, but after that kind of weekend we just had, it's going to be hard to replicate that kind of emotion, I think, two weeks in a row. And that's, I agree. That's Coming off of a big win, it's one of the hardest things is to get players to stay focused. Um, so it'll be interesting. You're going to be there. Make sure you wear white. Yep, whiteout game. I actually had to buy a new, I didn't, I didn't own any BYU white gear, so... I just made a purchase on the BYU bookstore supporting that. How long are we going to be able to keep saying white out, by the way? At what point does that become racist? Uh, It might already be. I mean, you saw there was already people after BYU beat Utah using it as an opportunity to uh, criticize BYU's lack of support for social justice issues. So um, I'm sure we're already well on our way to that. I'm sure Elder Holland saw that message and cared a lot about it. So I'm sure he did. Yeah, I'm sure he's crying right now. All right, sir. Well, I think we'll wrap it up with that, but many thanks for coming on again and wrapping that up and uh, putting a nice bow on the BYU-Utah rivalry for this season. Go Cougars. Go Cougars. There's an hourglass sitting on my table I'm watching. 
Cause everything's changing my mind Go to a different time Oh, love, I remember falling so mad.